Obviously, today I want to focus on the Word, uh, which is the first of the five solas of uh, the Reformation, uh, Sola Scriptura, which uh, kind of summarizes what the Reformation was about, right? Rely on Scripture alone, by faith alone, in grace alone, but, you know, faith alone and in Christ alone, do all to the glory of God alone. And I think those are good models for us still to live by today. Uh, and to remember that, like the song said, our word, the word is eternal and uh, it doesn't change. And so uh, we'll uh, talk more about that. I'll just leave that up there for now as a reminder as we, well, I, I, guess, I guess I wanna do one more slide. I have a couple scripture verses about Sola Scriptura. There, so from Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The grass withers, the, flower, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever, Isaiah 48. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Mark 13.31, and that's Jesus speaking. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, the word in the good, and this word is the good news that we preach to you. And that's Peter talking in 1 Peter 1, 23, 25. I think those are good things to remind us that uh, encapsulates a lot about what Sola Scriptura is about. In the uh, first song, How Firm a Foundation, that we just sang, uh, I love the first line actually because it reminds us, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid your faith in his excellent word. It's the word. And then the second song, speak, O Lord, in the first sentence, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. And I think we live and die based on the word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together of fellowship. It's just a blessing that we have this place, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the people that came before us to provide us with this venue that we have the time to worship you and praise you and study your word. And we ask that you be with us today, convict us of our hearts, to remind us that your word is firm, a firm foundation, and it's your holy food for our eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, <laughs> do not disturb. <laughs> I'm going to try again. <laughs> Scripture alone is the true Lord and Master of all writings and doctrines on earth. If that is not granted, 
that scripture, what is scripture good for? The more we reject it, the more we become satisfied with men's books and human teachers. Martin Luther stated that. John Calvin said, I approve only of those human institutions which are founded upon the authority of God and derive from Scripture. And then B.B. Warfield, Sola Scriptura is the cornerstone of universal Protestantism. And on it, Protestantism stands or else it falls. And it's been falling in our modern times. As an example, what would you say to somebody that says this? So what if everything in the Bible isn't true and reliable or from God? That doesn't really matter, does it? The Bible still remains the authority in my life. That's words from a church-going, Bible-carrying, evangelical Christian. This person has no relation, uh, doesn't see any relation between the truthfulness of Scripture and the authority of Scripture as if one had nothing to do with the other. So what's the key takeaway from this? Two things. First, the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura is just as important today as it was in the 16th century. In the 16th century, the reformers faced off against Rome because the Roman church had elevated itself, its traditions in the magisterium to the level of scripture or even above scripture. Second, the 16th Protestantism in its view of the Bible has undergone an evolution in its identity. Movements such as postmodernism have elevated other voices to the level of Scripture or even above Scripture. Today, many people reject that the Bible is God-breathed in the truthfulness that it asserts. And I think we all witness that in some of the churches that have uh, uh, put the kind of people in the pulpit to teach us or at their churches are, are not based on what the Bible says a teacher leader should be. And uh, it's something that you know, I think we all know about. A historian, Carl Henry, pointed out, the church throughout history has faced repeated attacks on the Bible from skeptics, but only in the 19th and the 20th centuries has the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God's word been questioned criticized and abandoned by those within the body of Christ. To the reformers, this would have been unthinkable. This, yet this is the day we live in. Not only do Bible critics pervade the culture, but now they have mounted the pulpit and sit comfortably in the pews. They want their ears tickled to hear what they want to hear. Repeated attacks on the scripture's own character reveals the enmity and the hostility toward the God of the Bible within our own souls. One of the most significant needs in the 21st century is a call back to the Bible, to posture that it encourages reverence, acceptance, and adherence to its authority and message. Along with that realization that sola scriptura is just as applicable today as it was in the 16th century. Many Christians in the church have no idea what scroll, sola scriptura is or what it means. 
So what is sola scriptura? The title of the book I used to prepare this message, God's Word Alone, the Authority of Scripture, is another way of saying sola scriptura. But really, what, let's, let's define it even more. Sola scriptura means that only Scripture, because it is God's inspired Word, is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. First, this means the scripture alone is our final authority. Authority is a bad word in our society today, but the Bible is all about authority. And in fact, sola scriptura means that the Bible is our chief, supreme, and final, and ultimate authority. Sola scriptura does acknowledge that there are other important authorities for the Christian, authorities who should be listened to and followed, but scripture alone is our final authority. It is the authority that rules over and governs all other authorities. It is the authority that has the final say. We could say that while church tradition and church officials play a ministerial role, Scripture alone plays the commanding role. That means that all other authorities are to be followed only in as much as they align with Scripture, submit to Scripture, are, and are seen as subservient to Scripture, which alone is our supreme authority. And we've seen this played out through the COVID epidemic, where the government exceeded its powers, exceeded the authority of Scripture trying to govern church life. And they cannot put themselves above Scripture, and then we're obligated to follow Scripture. Second, sola scriptura also means it's a Scripture alone is our sufficient authority. Not only is the Bible our supreme authority, but it's the authority that provides believers with all the truth that we need for salvation and for following after Christ. The Bible, therefore, is sufficient for faith and practice. This notion of the Bible's sufficiency has been powerfully articulated by the Reformation Confession, the Belgic Confession of 1561. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught herein. I was in a church that announced one day, hey, come back Saturday, next Saturday, and we're going to have a prayer labyrinth set up for you and all these prayer stations in this maze to go through. And I said, where is that in the scripture? You know, and I said, you're, that is not what the scripture teaches. And we have to be careful of how we practice what, uh, uh, our faith and make sure that we're practicing per the dictates of scripture. The Westminster Confession in 1646 says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his God's own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from Scripture, until which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. In short, the Bible is enough for us. Galatians 1, 8 through 9, Paul reminds us, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, 
If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. I think Paul was trying to make a point. He repeated it twice, one sentence right after the other. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, 1 through 3. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by our spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. If someone comes to you with what they say is new revelation, a new word, and if it doesn't match up with Scripture, you know it's a false prophet. And I think in the law, a false prophet, if his prophecies didn't come true, is to be stoned to death. That was, that was the end of that prophet under the law. You know, and these people that say when the end times are coming, uh, they just give them another shot. Well, I made a mistake. I'll give you another date. Uh, you should have been stoned right then and there. In <laughs> Second uh, Timothy three fifteen through 17. And how far from childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, as we know, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is sufficient. Third, sola scriptura means that only Scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant authority. People love to see what are seemingly contradictions in the Bible and say, there's a mistake in the Bible, but they don't understand the Bible. And if there is something that's a paradox, there is paradoxes because God hasn't revealed everything to us, but that doesn't mean it's inerrant. Notice that the basis of biblical authority, the very reason why scripture is authoritative is that God is the divine author. The ground for biblical authority is divine inspiration. As the Westminster Confession says, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore is to be received because it, because it is the word of God. 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2.13 and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you, were, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 2 Timothy 3.16, just read part of that. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. And 2 Peter 1.19, and we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men smoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And 1 John 5, 9. 
if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. To get the full picture of Sola Scriptura, we need to go beyond the sayings of the, that the Bible is inspired or God-breathed. Inspiration should lead us to an understanding that the Bible is perfect, flawless, and inerrant. In other words, inerrancy is the necessary corollary of inspiration. There are two sides to the same coin, and it is impossible to divorce one from the other, inerrancy from inspiration. Because it is God speaking, and he is a God of truth, not error. His word must be true and trustworthy in all that it addresses. Because inerrancy is a biblical corollary and consequence of divine inspiration, inseparably connected and intertwined, it is a necessary component of sola scriptura. The Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, which was just, I think, in the 1960s, nicely captures this relationship between inspiration and inerrancy. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in its teachings. The God of truth has breathed out this word of truth, and the result is nothing less than a flawless authority for the church. The Cambridge Declaration, even a newer one in 1996, affirming the inerrancy and inseparability of Sola Scriptura. And the reason that these, the Chicago Statement, the Cambridge Declaration, is to remind the Protestant church the word, the word, because they, we keep drifting back in these, People are meeting and making these declarations, and preachers and ministers are signing this declaration, affirming Scripture alone is the inerrant rule of the church's life, and they reaffirm the inerrant Scripture to be the sole source of written divine revelation, which alone can bind the conscience. What is often missed in the retelling of Luther's progress to the Diet of Worms is the question of why Luther's stance on Scripture was so detested by Rome. What made Luther's stance on biblical authority so different was, and so offensive to the Roman church, you know, what was it that made it so offensive to the Roman church? The answer is that Luther had the audacity to say that only Scripture is an errant authority. While popes and consuls err, Scripture alone does not. For Rome, Scripture and tradition were inerrant authorities. He was calling out the church. For Luther, Scripture alone is our inerrant authority. So let's talk a little bit about that road to the Reformation, the biblical authority in the 16th century and where this all, why we're here today, I think. This is Martin Luther talking after the fact of the Reformation getting started. While I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or an emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Martin Luther. Hendrik Zwingli, the famous reformationist in Switzerland, 
The foundation of our religion is the written word, the scriptures of God. And J. Gresham Make commented on the Reformation of the 16th century was founded upon the authority of the Bible and it set the world aflame. So one year before that 1517 and, and uh, Martin Luther nailing his uh, 95 thesis to the door exactly one year on All Saints Day, November 1st, 1516. And this is, this is just blew me away. There sat all the relics in the church to celebrate All Saints Day. And there were lots of them. Listen to this list. There was a cut of fabric from the swaddling cloth of baby Jesus. 13 pieces of his crib a strand of straw from the manger, a piece of gold from a wise man, three pieces of myrrh, oh, they forgot the frankincense, a morsel of bread from the Last Supper, <laughs> a thorn from the crown of Jesus wore when crucified, and on top of that all, a genuine piece of stone that Jesus stood on before he ascended to the Father's right hand. And in good Catholic fashion, the Blessed Mary was not left out. There sat three pieces of cloth from her cloak, four from her girdle, four hairs from her head, and better yet, seven pieces from the veil that was sprinkled with the blood of Christ. These relics and countless other 19,000 bones from other saints stood ready to be viewed by the pious pilgrims. The relics were the proud collection of Frederick the Wise, and he'll come back to play later. He was the elector of Saxony, he was Martin Luther's prince, and they sat in the castle church at Wittenberg, prepared for showing on All Saints Day, November 1st, 1516. In the midst of this fanfare was one essential ingredient, the procurement of indulgences. And this is what really set the Reformation on fire. The veneration of the relics was accomplished by the issuances of indulgences, a certificate guaranteeing the buyer that his time in purgatory would be reduced and remitted. Ready for this? This will be a test afterwards. You, you, you would be reduced or remitted from purgatory by 1,902,202 years and 270 days. Exactly. I didn't find that in the Bible anywhere. An indulgence was full or partial remission of temporal punishment for sins. It was drawn from the treasury of merit, a storehouse of grace, which was accumulated by meritorious uh, saints of Christ that had already passed away and by a super, super abundant merit, including Mary. Again, I don't think that's in the Bible anywhere. But they were milking the people for money. That This was the way to get money. They couldn't read the Bible. It was in Latin. The common man had no idea what the Bible said. They just had to take the church's word for it. That was their only source of scriptural knowledge is what came from the church. And this is what the church was replaying. It doesn't say 
In Mark 4, 12, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand in the Latin Bible. It says, do penance. Do penance. You've got to pay for your sins. You've got to pay for your sins to have them forgiven. Give the church money, and we'll give you forgiveness. It was all about power and money. And Luther was attacking that power. By the end of 1517, Martin Luther had had enough. One year prior, he had preached against the corruption of indulgences. This time, he would put his objections in writing for academic debate. Luther drew up his 95 thesis, exposing the abuses of the indulgences, denying the power and authority of the pope over purgatory, and testing whether the pope truly had the welfare of the sinner in mind. And when the, we were finished, these theses, and when they were finished, these theses were put on the castle door on October 31st, 1517. And because of the printing press, somebody took that off and had it printed and distributed all throughout Western Europe. This made it harder for Rome to control what was going on. The printing press was the invention of the millennium that helped unlock the Reformation. The printing press was invented about uh, 100 years before this, and this is what helped they couldn't suppress the knowledge that was being distributed because of the printing press. Luther's greatest challenge, though, would come following the year, then the following year at what was known as the Leipzig de debate. This is in his final time. This was a process of his excommunication from the church. Luther had to address two key passages Rome relied on for its authority. Matthew 16, 18 through 19, that Jesus is called, Jesus calls Peter the rock that he will build his church on, conferring upon Peter the, kings, the keys of the kingdom. According to Rome, here Jesus teaches that Peter is the first pope, giving to Peter and his successors by default the foundational position in the erection of his church. Since Peter, and by implication all future popes, is given the keys of the kingdom. The Pope possesses supreme authority and control over the church and infallibly exercises that authority as the supreme ruler when he teaches as the vicar of Christ on earth. That's not in the Bible either. John 21, 15, 19 tells, us, tells Peter to feed my lambs. Again, Rome saw Jesus as conferring on Peter the exclusive right to exercise that power over the church. Luther, however, rejected those interpretations. He believed that Rome was reading the papacy power and claims back into the Bible. In interpreting Matthew 16, 18 through 19, Luther followed the interpretive tradition that applies this promise either to Christ's disciples or to the very faith of confessing Jesus as the Christ. Jesus is our rock, Jesus Christ. For Luther, the rock is not any particular church, but the invisible church is wherever the word of God is heard and believed. It is faith which possesses the keys, the sacraments, and the authority of the church. In interpreting Jesus' commands to feed his sheep, Luther argued that this has nothing to do with exclusive power of the Pope, but refers instead to preaching. Luther concluded that neither one of these patches supports papal supremacy. And Steve feeds us every Sunday morning, feeding us the word of God. That's 
how you feed the lambs. Luther rejected papal infallibility, as well as the belief that the Pope exclusively possessed the correct interpretation of the Bible. Rome's twisting of scripture to bolster its classical, ecclesial, ecclesial power only demonstrated to Luther that a Babylonian captivity had indeed come upon the church. When it was time for the debate, the central issue to the table, who has final authority, God's word, or the Pope, was the question. For the Roman church, Scripture received its authority from the Pope. Luther strongly disagreed, arguing and said that Scripture has authority over popes, church fathers, and even church councils, all of which have erred in the past. Moreover, Luther said, not only is Scripture our infallible authority, but a schoolboy with scripture in his hand is better fortified than the Pope. You know, to me, twisted scripture means a lot to me because a lot of you know I had a cousin that was caught up in the Jonestown uh, cult. And, you know, they twisted scripture to no end. And that my cousin ended up getting brainwashed, went to Jonestown, and drank the Kool-Aid. And I, this is dangerous not only in this life, but the afterlife, obviously, as well. Lest we miss the obvious, though, it is important to note for Luther, sola scriptura was directly connected to the inerrancy of Scripture. Luther did not use the term inerrancy in his writings or in debate, yet the concept is present throughout his thinking on the matter. If Scripture is not inerrant, then sola scriptura is without foundation. So it has to be inerrant. Otherwise, it can't be our foundation. For Luther, what made the Bible alone the supreme authority was not only was it inspired by God, but as a result of being God-breathed, the scriptures and the scriptures alone could not and do not err. On the other hand, church councils and popes can and do err. So while Rome believed scripture and tradition were inerrant authorities, Luther argued that scripture alone is our inerrant authority from God. Luther left the debate only to become further convinced that Scripture, not the Pope, was the Christian's final authority. In the end, Luther realized that if the Pope was to have authority over Scripture, the reform within the church was impossible. The church didn't want to be reformed. It wanted that authority, that power. There's only three sins right in the world. It's, it's our ego, pride. You know, coveting, I mean, you know, Adam and Eve, you know, just those three, that's the work of the devil. And this is what Martin Luther finally said. The Pope's word would always trump God's. In that case, the reign of the Antichrist there was sealed. And it was no longer the church of God, but the synagogue of Satan. The Leipzig debate is one of the most pivotal events of the Reformation. Many at the time believed that showing, that, showing, that showing from church history that Luther was aligned with a heretic. Many at the time believed that showing from church history that Luther was aligned with the heretic, John Huss, who a hundred years earlier, who was a disciple of Wycliffe, uh, was burned at the stake in what we know today, I think, as Czechoslovakia. It's in that part of Eastern Europe was where uh, Huss preached. But he was preaching the word of God. And when he was being burned at the stake, 
I'm going to paraphrase what he said. He said, a hundred years from now, God will light a fuse that no man can put out. A hundred years later, Luther's on the scene. His prophecy came true. Yet Luther's appeal to scripture over popes and councils removed the rug of Rome's authority right out from under it. The Roman church appealed to councils, appealed to councils but Luther went to the foundation itself, scripture and scripture alone. On January 3rd, 1521, Luther was excommunicated by Pope Leo X. By April 17th, he summoned, I don't know why, he's been excommunicated, he summoned to Worms for an imperial diet before Charles V, ruler of the Holy Roman Empire and committed Roman Catholic. A great crowd gathered for the event. All Luther's works, here's his Bible right here, all his works were gathered there on the table. And he was asked whether he would stand by what he had written or recant. Same thing happened to the successor of Wycliffe who completed the second version of the Wycliffe Bible. He recanted and he forever regretted it. He was asked whether he'd stand by it, what he had hinted or recant. Luther did not take this moment lightly. He knew the seriousness of the situation. Because this was going to be his death sentence. He feared speaking rashly, not wanting to do harm to God's word and put his own soul in jeopardy. So Luther asked for time to think about his answer and Luther returned the next day and spoke with boldness. Luther asked that he be refuted with real proofs of his wrongdoings. The scripture said Luther should be the determinant determinative in this matter. It should not be shown, should he be shown errors from Scripture, he would gladly recant. And not only recant, but he would be in first line to burn his books. So the Diet demanded that Luther give him a clear answer. They didn't come out. They had no proof. And the only reason somebody goes after somebody is because they do have the truth and they want to kill that truth. So, will you recant or not, was the question. At that, Luther spoke those famous words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not retract anything 
since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. That night before, when Luther prayed fervently, face down to the Lord, Luther knew if he didn't recant, as I mentioned, he would sign his death sentence. And this was a time of testing for Luther. 2 Corinthians 13, 3, 5. He, Christ, is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. But dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to pass the test. I don't know how important this part, this just a light bulb went off on me, you know, what's the test? Is when we are put to the test, when we have to make that decision. Luther passed the test. And that day, he did not recant. He put all his faith. It's one thing to have faith, but to put it in action and trust in the Lord. Faith and trust. He had the faith, and he put his trust in the Lord. And whatever's going to happen, I'm going to recant. I'm not going to recant. He's going to trust in the Lord. Luther left and returned to his corners, only to lift up his hands and shouted, I have come through, I have come through. He knew he passed the test. He didn't know what lay before him, but it was in God's hands. And God had a lot for Luther to do after that, obviously we know. The rest is history, as they say. Luther was kidnapped by France, whisked off to the Württemberg Castle. Frederick the Wise had had all those relics placed in the church. He was his protector. Luther's location in the castle was kept an absolute secret. Indeed, even Duke John, Frederick the Wise's brother, did not realize Luther's location until he happened to visit the castle in September 1521. To further add to the secrecy, Luther grew a beard, began to call himself the alias Yonker Jorg, or Knight George. Well, one year later, Luther published the first German New Testament in 1522. It was in September, and it's called the September Testament, uh, uh, nicknamed the September Testament. If you hear that, that's usually referring to Luther's 1522. And he finished the Old Testament in 1534 and led the charge of the Reformation, building on the foundation of God's word, sola scriptura, final authority, sufficient authority, inerrant authority. Just a few passages that I'd like to read to you to reinforce everything. Ephesians 6, 17. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Why, Paul? Back to Ephesians 6, 11. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And why doesn't the Word 
world like the Word, Hebrews 7.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints of marrow, and, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Matthew 7.24-27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock, passing the test. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man to build his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. There we equate God, Christ, as the word. In Revelation 19, 11 through 15. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. I'm going to stop here for a prayer, but I have a few things after the prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of fellowship. Thank you for the people that went before us to pave the way, to be an example for us as to how, stand for, how to stand firm in your faith and in your, in your word. And may we have the faith and the trust to pass the test. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.